This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Incorporating native designs and concepts into urban streetscapes can make cities more welcoming to indigenous residents. That's the idea from a growing number of architects and urban developers who urge cities to bring in native voices during the planning process for projects both big and small. We'll talk to some planning professionals about the concept of native urban planning and how that might look in your city. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A Wind River Made documentary highlighting missing and murdered indigenous people won big recently in a film festival. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman reports. Who She Is recently won Best Animated Film at the Oregon Documentary Film Festival. The documentary brings faces and voices to four indigenous women caught in the MMIP epidemic. Sheila, Leela, Jocelyn, and Abby. It aims to humanize the people behind the statistics. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, Native American women are murdered at a rate 10 times higher than the national average. Co-producer Jordan Dresser, who is Northern Arapaho, said the film's team intentionally chose to make an animated documentary to help bring each woman alive. It's important to know the people who are victims of it and what's happening to them, like the actual people who get murdered, you know, and actual people who survive it. I think it's very important that we always allow them to have a space to tell their stories in good ways. The film was co-produced by Dresser and Sophie Barksdale with animation by Ojibwe artist Jonathan Thunder and Casper-based artist Tony Elmore. I'm Hannah Haberman. Communities across Alaska's North Slope are mourning the loss of Craig George, who recently died in a rafting accident. At the age of 70, George was more than just a scientist to the Inupiaq of Utkayagvik called Barrow when he arrived in 1977. He would become one of the world's experts on bowhead wells, and as KMBA's Rhonda McBride reports, so respected, he was made an honorary welling captain. Keep on welling. Among the many tributes to Craig George on Facebook, you'll find different recordings of him singing this song, which he wrote to celebrate whaling. For Craig George, bowhead whales were more than about research. It's hard to measure the complete impact that Craig had on our lives. Richard Glenn, an Inupiaq whaler and longtime friend, says he admired George's holistic approach to science, that he learned about seals, birds, everything connected to the world of the whale, including people. I think the world has yet to realize after a career of 50 years almost what we feel. George was part of a group of scientists who challenged the status quo and went on to prove that native whalers had a better understanding of how to accurately track the whale population than Western science. When the world might have been focused against them, these gentlemen spent their careers corroborating traditional knowledge about the movement of animals, about the population. George would often say he received more from the Inupiat than he could ever possibly give back. And yet we know he's given back so much, taken our traditional knowledge and 
science to the world stage and defended it. Richard Glenn says Craig George left a body of knowledge that will help North Slope whalers now and into the future do just what his song says. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. No remains were found at a former Indian boarding school in Genoa, Nebraska. After a two-week archaeological dig, the Associated Press reports, the team led by the state's archaeologist will now examine data and consider next steps. They also plan to hold a virtual meeting this week with tribal representatives from across the country. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Is your tank empty? There's another gas you should be worried about. Carbon monoxide can kill in minutes, but you can stay safe by placing CO alarms in your home. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. A lot of thought goes into how neighborhoods function for the residents who live there. City planners try to blend the right mix of single-family homes, apartment buildings, shopping areas, and parks to people who want to live there and work there. When it's done right, cities become thriving and welcoming places. A number of planners say zeroing in on what makes Native residents feel at home is an extension of an idea that accommodates a population whose voice is often left out. Doing so, they say, has a larger beneficial effect. We're going to hear from some of our Native professionals today who advocate for incorporating Native voices in design features, architectural components, and landscapes to make cities better for all residents. We'll find out what that looks like, how it's been done already in some cities, and some proposals in the works that officials hope will create spaces where Native communities can thrive. As always, we welcome you to our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us in our Albuquerque studio today is Dr. Ted Hahola. He's the founder and director of the Indigenous Design and Planning Institute at the University of New Mexico. He is Isleta Pueblo. Dr. Hahola, Ted, welcome to Native America Calling. Hi, Sean, and hi, listeners. Well, Ted, I've had the privilege of knowing you for a long time. It's great to finally have you on the show. Thank you. Next up from Minneapolis, Minnesota, we're joined by Sam Obexin. He's the CEO of Full Circle Indigenous Planning and Design. He's Ojibwe from the White Earth Nation. Sam, great to have you on the show as well. Yeah, bonjour, everyone. Nice to be here. And rounding out our guest today is Wanda Dalacosta, who is in Tempe, Arizona. She's the principal of the Tawau Architecture Collective, and she's from the Saddle Lake First Nation. 
Dr. Costa, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. Absolutely. Well, let's get this conversation started, folks. And Ted, I, I want to begin with you because you've studied indigenous communities around the world. What are the benefits of incorporating native voices into urban planning specifically? Well, I believe it really comes back from rematriating um, traditional knowledge back into our environments. And urban spaces are one huge component of that. But I think it's been understated that our in ancestors really were um, there in time and place before many of the great cities themselves rose. Um, Phoenix is a good example with the O'odham culture, uh, St. Louis with the uh, Mound cultures. Um, and, you know, you, we, we've got uh, actually even New York City with um, the native communities that existed there before. So uh, when these colonial settlers came in time and place, they actually built on what was already the kind of infrastructure that existed there. But now that uh, we've not uh, really adapted a sustainable kind of lifestyle, I think it's necessary now to take some of that traditional knowledge and bring it back to um, these places. And Ted, some of those classical communities and developments that you're describing that you're familiar with there many years ago, what were some of the features? I mean, what were our indigenous people doing centuries ago with regard to planning and design of these thriving communities? Well, I think one of the myths that's been perpetuated, uh, unfortunately, in anthropology largely, is that our communities were always kind of tiny and small. Uh, you know, they always talked about us in the past as being only thousands of people, and that was kind of the scale. But when you actually look at some of our ancestral sites, uh, in places like Phoenix, for example, with the canal system, which they still use to this day to bring water from the Colorado River, uh, it sustained communities that were 100,000 or larger, and they rivaled anything that was in medieval Europe at that particular time. So um, they uh, present-day culture has really benefited from uh, not only building on top of that engineering, but also, in a sense, even looking at uh, practices such as xeriscape and you know being much more uh, knowledgeable about uh, how it is that you actually use water, recycle it, renew it, um, how you deal with flora, fauna that you know is adapted to the environment and try instead of trying to transform us into the Midwest where um, you know we have um, Bermuda grass lawns and big trees that suck up water so on and so <laughs> forth. The zero scaping is really uh, something that you know was uh, practiced by our native peoples. Well, it sounds like they really understood the importance of, of designing and planning around the environmental features that they faced. Oh, in terms of buildings, um, you know, we built uh, from the natural elements that were all around. And of course, you know, being Pueblo, I can speak to that Pueblo perspective. Um, we're uh, building technologies using Adobe, for example, um, which essentially provides an incredible amount of insulation and is adapted to the temperature variance during the daytime and seasonally as well, too are some of these kinds of things that really, in a sense, make us super energy efficient. And some places like Santa Fe, which calls itself the city different, is totally built on 
you know, using uh, this kind of technology as a way to to uh, build amenity for themselves. Well, another feature of our conversation so far that I find so fascinating is so often that we think of urbanization as this colonial concept, but it sounds to me like urbanization or urban areas um, were existing long, long ago. So it's not a completely new concept to us as Native people, is it? No, no. And that's why I say that, you know, we've been living in this kind of myth that we were always small, uh, non-essential kinds of communities that were sort of scattered all over the place. We maintain large uh, urban areas. Uh, they may not have been as dense as what we see today. And of course, you know, uh, with the advent of infrastructure that we maintain within city systems at this particular time. Um, but nonetheless, you know, we were tied to the land. We knew exactly how to be able to manage, and it was built into our culture, our worldview. Um, we could basically answer, you know, why do we exist? And, you know, what is our relationship to the land? So I think uh, bringing that perspective really, in a sense, can help to um, build more resiliency and sustainability in our urban settlements. Well, Ted, let's go ahead now and click ahead here. It's 2023, and, and there's a, a term you use. It's it's called place knowing. Can you tell us more about that term and how it accommodates the needs of Native people, specifically residents and people living in cities? Yeah, actually, it came out of conversations with uh, like-minded Indigenous uh, professionals, uh, academics, students that we held um, as a result of work that we had been doing with Art Place America and around the topic of place making. And when we took this out to various forums across the country, we asked them, what do you understand about place making? And largely they said, we don't know what that means because our places are already made, we've inherited them and it's our responsibility to be able to sustain them for our future generations. So it was at that time that many folks within the communities, especially elders from communities, began to articulate the sense that um, it's uh, not essentially creating places, but knowing about places. And that place knowing is important because if we don't walk the land with our children, then we won't know the culture, we won't know the meaning of our places, we won't know the stories, we won't know the language, and we'll uh, then begin to really lose our sense of identity and culture. So place knowing then is really central and key to taking this conversation away from um, thinking that we're inventing and building places as much as uh, being much more attuned to what it is that we've inherited and how our ancestors inform how it is that we move forward. And as somebody who works as a, as a planner, how do you get that information, that place-knowing information? Is it stuff you know on your own? Do you talk to other people? Do you have focus groups? Where, where does that information come from? You talk to people. You have to talk to the people themselves. And, you know, one of our uh, mantras is really to be able to build that sense of community voice and get people themselves to really talk about how it is that they think about staging themselves into the future. So we do it from this uh, process we call seven generations planning, where we get people to imagine themselves as being the middle generation and acknowledging that they have their fathers, their grandfathers, and their great-grandfathers before them. 
their children, their grandchildren, and their uh, great-grandchildren ahead of them, and that uh, they may actually be represented, especially within a healthy community living there, and that all of those voices then should be present in terms of talking about the future. So when we talk about generations, we stage it in such a way of getting away from the Euro-Western paradigm of saying, let's talk about 10-year planning, 15-year planning, 25-year planning. That's really abstract. But if we can build that conversation and say, talk about it from the standpoint of your next generation or your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, then it brings a totally different context and reaction to that conversation. Ted, we're going to have to take a break here in about another minute. But before the show, we were chatting a little bit. And I know you have been at the University of New Mexico now since the early 1980s. Were ideas like place knowing and some of these other concepts that you're sharing, were those being practiced when you first started doing your kind of work? Um, They were there, but I think what we've been attuned to is really beginning to develop the vocabulary and language and uh, staging what is the scholarship and the process around that. So we've just been developing a way that, you know, we can use the language and a process model to help others to articulate what it is that they themselves have already known but uh, really didn't know how to voice. We are talking about indigenous planning today here on Native America Calling, and our first guest, Dr. Ted Hahola, is the founder and director of the Indigenous Design and Planning Institute at the University of New Mexico. And an interesting factoid, Dr. Hahola was actually the very first person who was ever interviewed here on Native America Calling when this show started nearly 30 years ago. Folks, a lot more with Dr. Hahola and our other guests when we get back from this short break. A coalition of tribes is among the voices proposing an ambitious plan to designate more than a million acres in Arizona as a new national monument. We'll find out what the designation would accomplish and how federal protections work when it comes to important cultural land. That's on the next Native America Calling. From round dance to the exhibition dance, you always come prepared. Why not the same with your health? Schedule your wellness visits and never miss a beat. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov coverage or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. What do you love about the city you live in? In what ways could its design or functionality be improved? Today we're talking about urban planning from a Native point of view. Are there ways cities can be more welcoming for Native residents? Let us know by calling 1-800-996-2848. And our first guest, Dr. Ted Hahola, is at the University of New Mexico. And Ted, before we went into break, you, you talked to a lot about uh, the history of Native people and our sense of planning and design and and how those skills were manifested many, many years ago. But um, moving ahead to the present now and 
because I think so many of us as, as residents of cities or even just visitors, you know, we see the finished product, but what we don't see is all the behind the scenes work and effort that gets into building an urban space or a public space like what you've described. So could you tell us a little bit more about what it takes to actually do urban planning today in 2023? What types of tools and equipment or, or methodologies are used? Yeah, I think, you know, we're getting so much smarter about positioning ourselves in terms of being professionals, staging these kinds of developments. Um, generations ago, we really didn't have much of a presence. Uh, now with uh, the American Institute of Architects and the American Planning Association, we've got people who have come up the ranks, um, hold very high positions in some cases, are academics such as myself, and we're also ch uh, training a whole new learning community of young people who are assuming these kinds of roles. And they, in a sense, uh, taking, you know, the the kind of values and approaches and processes that we've been articulating and beginning to actually put them into practice uh, in the positions that they hold, I think that's really transformational. Um, we're doing that from the standpoint of just our own tribes, but now I think they're also influencing non-native tribes as well, too, in terms of how they're staging themselves. And when we think of architecture and we think of planning, I mean, those are two different skills, but they're related, right? Um, they are. Um, uh, but, you know, one, it, it's just a matter of scale, really. Um, architects usually focus in on buildings as kind of the scale whereas planners are much more interested in sort of looking at how land use is uh, best facilitated, especially from looking at it from the standpoint in the health and welfare. But then there's actually an intermediate group as well, too, that is not really represented very well, and that's landscape architecture, which is mm. uh, looking at the practice of how you look at the outside spaces that are created by uh, built form or by natural form as well, too. Well, Ted, thank you again for, for kicking us off today. I want to pivot to our, our second guest on the show today, Sam Olbeckson, and he is the CEO of Full Circle Indigenous Planning and Design. Sam, building on what Ted has described so far, what are the key concepts when incorporating Indigenous design into your work? Well, I think that, I think Ted was right that there's different scales of, of design, and it really does include um, you know, planning, architecture, landscape, and and engineering as well. Uh, so my take on it as an architect, so I'm an architect, I also am an urban designer. Um, architecture is often thought of as uh, an individual building and all the issues associated with that, including expression and use and function. And then from a, the standpoint of urban design and planning, it's I see it as more about the, the relationship between those buildings and to make sure that those buildings all add up to a greater whole than each individual one. And so uh, design, um, such as landscape architecture, planning, and um, um, interiors even, they all add up to a sense of the bigger purpose, which is community building. Mm -hmm. And the details, because as people who live in these buildings or in these communities, I mean, what do they see? What can they sense? And, and how do they understand that, hey, this is, there was indigenous thought and indigenous expertise that went into building or designing this space? Yeah, I mean, one one thing that's incredibly important, and I'm able to um, work with tribes around the country, but each individual tribe or each individual urban community has, a, you know, its own identity, its own history, its own um, communities, 
for example, Minneapolis is one of the largest and most tribally diverse communities, uh, urban communities in the country. And, and when you design for a place that has many different tribes, that's one set of uh, uh, circumstances. If you do urban design and planning on a reservation, you can usually you know, focus on their individual identity. But that identity is expressed in, in a number of ways. One is just simply, you know, what do you see? When, what, do you, what do you see when you approach a building? Um, but that in turn creates a, a number of different things. That's, you know, everything from the experience of parking or taking mass transit. You know, what is the landscape that you see in front of it? Are there indigenous plants that you recognize as being part of your culture? Is the, the color, the materials, the shape of the building, is that uh, indicative of your tribal identity? And then as you enter the building, you know, what do you, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? Uh, what do you feel? And uh, do you feel at home? Do you see the uh, again the the shapes the patterns the colors the history uh, the cultural ways of life uh, in the building and I think there's uh, much more than just simply what does it look like but you know how does it operate are there places for gathering is there a drum room is there uh, opportunities to have um, uh, different types of cultural experiences and that can happen in in many ways in different buildings whether it's a clinic or a school or a community center. Um, each each of them has a, a distinct opportunity to create uh, that expression that gives that sense of tribal identity. And then when you think mm-hmm. of like a larger urban plan, um, you know how how do those buildings relate to each other visually? How, what is the streetscape? Are there banners? What is the street furniture? The trees? All of those can tie directly into uh, cultural traditions. You know what are the what are the important cultural trees? That are part of, uh, you know, history and, and the ways of life that can recall and actually be a way to help educate community members about the importance of, uh, of not only what those things were, but um, it can frame a viewpoint of sustainability and how do you work within an environment um, to make sure that you're honoring water, the sun, uh, plants, and and our reciprocal relationship with that as uh, people who now live in buildings and in cities. Mm-hmm. Well, Sam, you're in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Minneapolis is very unique in that it has uh, a very significant part of the city that's been developed around its urban native residents. There are service providers, there's housing, and, and I'm curious, I mean, how did that develop over the years? Was that a, a planned um outcome or did it just kind of evolve organically this whole corridor there of Minneapolis that has so much native presence? Well, it was both reactionary and planned and maybe not planned in the way we want to think of it as is, is a good thing because a lot of the urban indigenous communities um, were created based on uh, assimilation era, Indian Reorganization Act, termination era policies by the U.S. government. Um, and so many, many many reservations were set up um, to fail, and then there were many policies um, beyond the reservations being set up that were designed uh, to specifically undermine and weaken them. Um, the Indian Relocation Act of 1956, it, its attempt was to get people off of reservations into urban areas with the really the empty promise of jobs and a, and a better life in these cities. And so Minneapolis is one of them. And then all over the country, there were there were actually handbooks that were put out there, you know, how to get 
Native people off of reservations in the city assimilated. And, uh, and in Minneapolis, the people who came down for that, including one of my grandfathers, um, you know, it all coalesced around Franklin Avenue because, you know, as a, as, um, and, you know, as your friends and family start coming down, you start to live next to each other. And, and then Franklin Avenue just kind of organically grew out of a response to those relocation attempts. Um, and then um, by the like 60s and 70s, it had become, you know, very dilapidated. There were liquor stores. There were, you know, basically social services, um, not a whole lot of housing opportunities. A lot of poverty became to happen. And this was all based on people moving down again for those, the promises of the jobs that really weren't there. And so that's, that's why the heart of the Native community ended up here uh, in the Twin Cities. Uh, there are areas also in, you know, regional areas such as St. Paul and other places. But the um, uh, Franklin Avenue became really the heart of that settlement. And now here we are, 2023. It's had a rejuvenation, a renaissance, if you will, has it not, the Franklin Avenue area? Yeah, so I, I grew up, you know, playing around Franklin Avenue, coming up and down. I remember all the liquor stores and the bars and and all the social services, I think, you know, fast forward to the 80s and 90s, what had happened is it became much more social service oriented. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of opportunities for um, different types of activities, such as uh, culture or uh, recreation or businesses. In about 2010, uh, the Native American community, um, uh, American Indian community blueprint was developed by NACTI and what that did is it tried to change the paradigm of our community being solely focused on the social services, but started to look at the assets uh, and the land ownership. You know, we realized we owned quite a bit of land on this um, um, area, and we weren't really doing with it because we were always waiting. We were always in a financial position to have to wait for others to, to promote the development. But the American Indian Community Blueprint was really a uh, – community engagement exercise where we started changing the paradigm and started doing things ourselves and started to think about what what's in our power to develop. You know, we have a, um, a CDC, we have the Minneapolis American Indian Center, we have a, a ton of different organizations that have started to now uh, reinvest you know, from our own funds and our own efforts at fundraising to develop um, a much stronger uh, neighborhood. And, and again, back in 2010, the the original goal was to create an alignment and, and for the first time envision what a healthy, successful, thriving urban indigenous community would be if we did it ourselves. And so that whole idea of um, creating that vision was, was the first step. And then over the past 10 years, our community has made a very strong effort at trying to create strategies and implementations of those visions so that the actual buildings are being built and the actual streetscape and landscapes are all coming together to uh, fulfill that that vision. And Sam, city officials, because Minneapolis is a huge city, well over a million population, how receptive are they to these ideas of using native concepts and urban projects? Well, for, for the most part, it's been, you know, very very well received. Um, Franklin Avenue in the American Indian Cultural Corridor is a county road. There's a, a couple of highways um, surrounding the area, so there's a whole lot of jurisdictions 
um, uh, Minnesota Department of Transportation. So there's all these overlapping jurisdictions, including the city of Minneapolis, and then um, and then obviously the state. Um, but Again, there, there wasn't a whole lot of investment from the outside. The, the Minneapolis American Indian Center, which was the first major structure built there, was just starting to deteriorate and be dilapidated. And, and about, about that same time, about 10 years ago, they sold it to the organization. It was previously on land um, owned by the city. They sold it to us for a dollar. Uh, I'm also, I also happen to be the board president of that, and we've had some great leadership over the years to really begin to start transforming that and um, and again from the corridor wise standpoint what what do you what makes a great community that was the big question for our our community members but then for each of the different parcels what uh, what are the best things for each of those buildings and so far that you know the city and the county and everyone has been um, in support of that we've um, gotten different grants uh, such as the great street grants that happened about you know maybe eight or uh, ten years ago where we started doing urban design and, and actually started drawing the ideas from uh, the American Indian Community Blueprint and then that has given us with a framework to fundraise and promote um, uh, the rest of the buildings that are being built in the corridor right now so in, in general there's often a hands-off approach um, there's been a lot of support. You know, we have, like other cities, a, a very um, tenuous relationship with certain ju jurisdictions and in, in how we're policed, and, and all those issues are create urban challenges like in any other community. Um, but the important thing that we found as a community with all uh, in dozens of great Native American nonprofits and other organizations is that when we do it ourselves and we take the initiative, that's when we're actually making the change happen. Thank you, Sam. I want to pivot now to our third guest, Wanda Dalacosta, who is in Tempe, Arizona. And again, she is the principal of Tawau Architecture Collective. And Wanda, this discussion really jibes with some work your firm has done, because I understand you've developed an indigenous urban design guideline or, or a set of guidelines. Can you talk about those? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, and I, I'm very happy to be on board here with Sam and Ted because I know them both and love their work. So very happy to on this, be on this conversation. Um, but uh, just to let you know, what we did is we actually applied for an uh, NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, Our Town grant. And through that grant, we were able to engage a series, <clears throat> excuse me, a series of artists from each of the communities. Hang on one second. Apologies. We were able to engage the artists from each of the local communities. And what we did is we kind of stood back and said, you know what, if you were going to develop cities for um, principles for city developments of the future, what would they look like? And so they worked internally on a set of principles um, for uh, the city of Tempe. And those principles were, number one, ancestral presence. Number two, culturally significant sites. Number three, you know, focus on the natural environment. And number four, expression through artists and creatives. And what we did is now we started a relationship with the city of Tempe, who was amenable to um, looking at these principles and seeing how they could be incorporated in the urban planning policy. 
And all of this work, I'm sure Ted and Sam know what, what I'll refer to here, all of this work was inspired by something that came out of Auckland, New Zealand, which is called Te Eranga. And through that program, it was a group of Indigenous artists uh, or artists and creatives and urban workers that uh, were looking at creating principles for rethinking how cities are made. And they did tremendous work, and that's available online. And that was the model that we used to create principles for Tempe. And now I would say after that, since we did it once, um, we're now being asked in a few other places, you know, everywhere from the, the um, Indigenous community in the city of Toronto to the Indigenous community in the city of um, some cities in California to bring that similar type of thinking to additional cities. Fascinating, fascinating. Wanda, and we're going to talk more uh, about these indigenous guidelines uh, as well as some other topics here on Native America Calling, but we have to take a short break. And I do encourage any listeners right now who have anything to add to this conversation, if you're interested in planning or you just have thoughts or, or any ideas for how spaces, public spaces or housing developments could incorporate native features or designs, let us know. 1-800-99-NATIVE. Did you know that bare space is best when it comes to your baby's sleep? That's right, when you keep their crib free from toys, pillows, blankets, and other loose objects, you can drastically reduce the risk of suffocation. All your little one needs is to be placed on their back atop a tightly fitted sheet to ensure a safer night's rest. More infant sleep safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Tuned in to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Why do you live where you do? Are there features about your city that make you feel especially welcome or at ease? Today we're talking with Native architects and designers about making urban spaces more accommodating for the Native people who live there. If that's a concept you value or can offer insights on, give us a call at 1-800-996-2848 and share your comments on the air. That number again, 1-800-99-NATIVE. One of our guests today, Wanda Dalacosta, is the principal of the Tawau Architecture Collective. And Wanda, you just got done describing uh, these indigenous urban design guidelines that your firm has created. And I'm interested in knowing, like, once everything has been completed and you've done a project and you've, you know, you've listened to all these stakeholders and you've incorporated all these different elements and features that you've described, how do you know that, it, that it's a success? I mean, what is it that, that happens when the community actually comes in and, and lives there or does business there? And when do you know you did everything right and you adhered faithfully to this idea of indigenous design? That's a great question. So we we also um, had, um, we've developed, you know, because I, I'm partly in academia, I teach at Arizona State University, and I founded and run the Indigenous Design Collaborative, which is was inspired by Ted's initiative at UNM, but I wanted one that would focus on architecture and sort of resetting or, you know, bringing the productive disruption to the field. And so within the work that we do, both at my private practice as well as the IDC, is about starting out by identifying indicators of success. So this is typically what an academic would do, you know, on a research project. You know, what are those markers that would tell us that we've hit success? And so we do the similar process within our architecture work. And then we reflect on those 
metrics of success throughout the entire project and we build them in to our final reports showing the community and the people that we work with how we met those outcomes. And I guess in addition to that and I think in relation to what Sam was talking about all those all those aspects that architects are aiming to to connect to one of the systems that we found uh, really easy to follow for both of our clients you know whether it's a city or a university or uh, you know a, a first nation or a tribal community is we've re we read an academic paper that uh, it talked about cultural sustainability in architecture and they gave a really simple three-part system and they said if you meet the ideological behavioral and social needs of that community and you know that's everything from um, you know, light, incorporating lifeways, which Sam was talking about, reflecting the identity, um, which I think Sam also mentioned, and then bringing those ideological, those worldviews into a project, you have met um, a culturally sustainable architecture project, or you have, you know, derived one. And so that's the system that we have been incorporating uh, in terms of uh, our metric system. Wanda, another element that I find so intriguing about the work that you and Ted and Sam do is that not only do you have to reflect so much on our history and our culture, but you also have to think ahead to the future, right? Because spaces change, needs change, populations change. How do you do that? How do you, at one point, you're looking at, at our culture and our history, but you also have to think about how people will evolve and change over time. How do you do that? Well, that's interesting because we started looking through the lens of a really cool field called Indigenous Futurity. It's happening in many fields, not just architecture. You know, it's happening in poetry and gaming and in narrative writing and in storytelling where you look and kind of, you know, move away from the kind of colonial project over the last couple of hundred years and think about what if, what if Indigenous people continued and we didn't have that interruption in history? What would our world look like? And I find this line of thinking helps not only my students that I'm teaching kind of um, detach from those colonial histories, but it allows our clients to kind of think creatively and aspirationally toward the future by using these sort of what-if scenarios. And when you do that and are able to release them from, you know, the, the confines of, of that imagination, I think you get completely different results. And so that is one of the practices that we continue to incorporate is really that ability to kind of disconnect and think about it in alternate ways. And it's been extremely powerful to begin to kind of think through what could be instead of, you know, the trajectory that we're currently on. Mm -hmm. Wanda, earlier when we heard Ted talk about how it, long ago we had cities in the americas that rivaled anything in europe in terms of, of population and enormity uh so what you're saying is this if colonial colonization had never happened and those cities and those communities had been allowed to realize their full potential what they would have been right exactly and i think what i find so powerful about this work and I'm sure Ted and Sam interact with this on a regular basis, is that the, the work that we all do is very value-based and I, I think ethically based, where you're not thinking about, you know, in architecture, I have a big critique of architecture because it's often based on winning awards and, you know, the ego of the architect, whereas Indigenous architecture to me is more communal and collective 
consensus-based. And so it's a very different approach, and it decenters self. It decenters the ego in the work of architecture. And I think that's really powerful because it allows other ideas to emerge. And the one that we're pushing on right now really big that we think has potentially global impact is the worldview, value-based worldviews, you know, around um, um, ethical and ecological responsibility for all actions in a city. And I think so some of these ideas we really, really, I think, need to get behind because it's not just the North, the North America Indigenous people, it's around the globe. We're getting calls from around the globe of different Indigenous cultures that be- believe their ancestral worldviews have something to offer in terms, in, you know, toward the resiliency of our entire planet. So I think it's time to start looking at these um, alternative ways of looking at the world and kind of bringing it into mainstream. And Wanda, for, for the community members, because you mentioned a collective approach, right? It's a collective, a community-based approach. How do you get uh, residents? How do you get people that, that live in these communities or could potentially live in these communities? How do you get their input? How do you get their, the, the stakeholders involved? That, that's a great question, too. You know, we, we do a lot of engagement. We learn by a trial and error. But the, we're right now actually developing a, a series of learning modules that will be available to the public for this reason. We, we want everyone to be able to learn how to engage. And you're right, it is very complex because each community has their own set of protocols and norms and, you know, um, practices that would enable a really successful engagement. But I think some of the, the tips and tricks is, you know, we start very early. We make sure we align with the local community to make sure we know who should be sitting at the table. Maybe start a little advisory group so that it can guide us through the entire project. And then we will do everything from like a town hall with 500 people in it to online surveys to make sure we're getting everyone's opinions. Uh, and then the other thing that we're having trouble with in terms of the, the scale of our work is how do you analyze all that data? And so right now we're actually looking at um, using machine learning to help us codify and categorize cultural data to make this um, analysis of the data easier. So that's our 2024 plan. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds really, really exciting as well. And I want to pivot back now to Ted Hahola. And Ted, you're in New Mexico and anybody who's been to New Mexico knows that uh, the architecture, especially in northern New Mexico, Santa Fe, but in Albuquerque too, it just invokes so much of what we know of how the original Pueblos were built. You've got the stucco and and the bare timbers and the geometric designs. In fact, in in Santa Fe, it's even required that buildings have to adhere to that specific code that, you know, the Santa Fe style, you know, you hear that term thrown around a lot. But I'm curious, I mean, do you have any thoughts about the line there between incorporating indigenous design what like what you and our other guests do and what i think some people might describe as as cultural appropriation with regard to buildings yeah it's totally about cultural appropriation and i think both uh, sam and wanda kind of alluded to the fact that um, a lot of our uh, efforts and is particularly from the standpoint of our ancestors who were knowledgeable who they were planners they were architects uh, long before anybody thought to come in and change us into the other, that we essentially had our own solutions and uh, staged them in ways that were beneficial to uh, our own community in terms of solidifying their notion of who it is that we are 
in terms of that kind of manifestation of identity and culture. And what has happened is that it's been so disrupted at this point that those things that were um, basically our tradition were usurped from us and we were transformed instead through things like HUD housing uh, to single family uh, family structures which uh, really didn't exist to parceling out lands to bringing in foreign materials to developing housing types that did not reflect any of our own uh, culture in terms of how we actually use uh, places. And really, I think the challenge is now that it's become such a valued amenity in places like the Santa Fe different, why the heck are we still working with this outmoded HUD housing uh, type of structure when our houses originally were so beautiful and so um, adapted to the places and we need to bring that back into our own communities and that of itself is also a huge enormous struggle and i want to go back to sam because sam you've addressed some of these issues with regard to housing and the old hut designs have you not in, in your own work uh, yeah absolutely <clears throat> i think um you know some of the related you know comments that i had in some of the uh other speakers' comments is that you know we 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 shape our communities and they shape us, and housing is such an important piece of that. And not only the actual typologies of housing that we are now starting to control by ourselves, but you know what is the relationship between the housing because housing is such an important piece of an overall community. Um, I've been uh, able to work on a, a number of different housing typologies, including single-family houses to um, multifamily. In Minneapolis, we just recently completed Minobi-Madizuin, which is an affordable housing uh, project um, right here on the, in the corridor. And that's been a, a great community asset because what it does is it creates uh, the services and clinic space and community gathering spaces within the building so that it actually serves the residences um, uh, who live above it. We're also working on another um, multi-family housing project for the Native American Community Clinic here on Franklin Avenue and really starting to kind of test the waters at these urban typologies of, of denser housing and how can we make density a, a good thing, bringing people together, having the services in alignment with uh, the needs of the people to create the units um, so that they reflect the housing uh, demographics, the larger housing sizes of the people. So uh, housing is, again, such an important piece of any community's health. Um, imagine our children waking up and you know, what are they waking up to and what do they see when they walk out the door? Uh, and so it's that you know, reciprocal relationship, again, between what your community and the environment, the physical environment that we create for ourselves and what does that allow us to be absolutely and sam one of the key takeaways from our show today is the importance of community input and uh, this collective approach and for somebody listening to the show today who might live in an existing neighborhood or maybe is thinking of moving to a city or an urban area how do you how do they get involved or how do they contribute how do they make their voices heard with some of these these projects that we're describing it i mean where, where do they go to to get this information and then how do they they get involved yeah well i agree with Wanda. there really isn't like one way to do this and there isn't a handbook on it, how to do it and 
each community is different and um and i would just encourage every um native community member to, to be part of um cultural social activities to talk to people um there are opportunities to serve on boards to um, just be aware of the things being involved uh, creates that sense of um, ownership in your own community but it also allows you to uh, have opportunities for that input um, you know consensus building that's kind of a myth I, I never really say that because it's not really about consensus building or uh, you know creating one answer from community engagement um, but it's really about how do you create a safe place to have an authentic dialogue about what our needs are and to do that in a way that um, comes from our own people facilitating and, and leading those things. Uh, I also appreciate what's happening with Wanda and data and, and how do we take this data and use it for us because data has been a thing that um, colonizers have used against us. So there's always been this kind of hesitancy to, to become part of those community engagements when it's led by um, universities or jurisdictions when it's not led by a, a native person because you need that trust and you need that sense of uh, what I'm going to say is actually going to make an input on it. I'm not just checking a box for some city's uh, I know, procurement policy that they have to include community voices, but how do you create a sense of dialogue, reach the people in the community that you need to reach, open it up and create, again, a safe environment to, to have what, you know, usually becomes a, a great inspirational dialogue about um, visions for the future. Uh, so I encourage, you know, any anyone to be part of those discussions. We are going to have to wrap up our show for the day. We're just about out of time, but I want to encourage all of our listeners today, please engage with us on social media. Check out our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. If you have anything you'd like to add to today's discussion about indigenous planning and design, this conversation does not have to end. So please, please make good use of those social media channels and those internet tools as well. I do want to thank our guests today, Dr. Ted Hahola, Sam Obexen, and Wanda Dalacosta for an lightning conversation on indigenous urban planning. Join us back here again tomorrow when we're talking about efforts to protect important cultural land with national monument status. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Have a great rest of your day. Program support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a native-led foundation supporting native-led initiatives protecting the lands, waters, and cultures of the plateau for generations to come. The Colorado Plateau Foundation helps to build networks, community, and organizational capacity. The Colorado Plateau Foundation is accepting grant proposals through September 2nd. Eligibility information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. I'm Michael, and I used to smoke. I never used to think about breathing. Then my left lung collapsed, and I was diagnosed with COPD. Now I think about breathing all the time. I'm on an oxygen machine so I can breathe. I take medicine so I can breathe. My tip is, enjoy the breaths you don't have to think about. You don't know how long you'll have them. Smoking can cause COPD. You can quit. For free help, visit cdc.gov slash quit now. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.